The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, we will work our way through verses 8 through 12 this morning. As you're turning there, uh, let me just sort of set things up. I recently uh, received my grandfather's uh, 1979 GMC pickup truck. Uh, it's, the, it's the truck that he bought uh, for he and my grandmother to uh, pull a camper and, and go across the country, see, see the country together. And then uh, shortly thereafter, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and, uh, and they never got to do that. They went to a couple of campgrounds, and, and there was a, an instance where she got lost in a campground, and, and uh, that was kind of the beginning. And uh, my grandfather held on to that truck, and, and I've uh, kind of all, all my life, I've played in that truck when I was a kid, all in the bed and, and pretended like I was driving it when, you know, before I could, long before I could drive and all those things. And now I've got it. And I look forward to kind of restoring that thing uh, and, and bringing it back to its original glory. And, uh, you know, sometimes you go places and, and people will say, man, I really like that truck. Last night, Lana and I uh, got in it and uh, it was around nine o'clock or so. And uh, we, uh, got in that truck and doesn't have AC and we rolled the windows down and we took off to Sonic. Uh, much of our dating uh, in our early years of college uh, was at Sonic. And so my wife and I were heading to Sonic in this 79 GMC pickup truck and my wife looked at me and said, we are country. You know, so, uh, but you know, ha- it's, it's a good thing, right? So, but people will say, well, I like that truck. I like that body style. And they'll begin to describe it. Yeah, that square body with those round headlights. That's, I really like that, that body style. You know, and, and they're attempting to describe what's characteristic of that particular model truck. I'll give you another example. Uh, my daughter the other day was, was uh, out shopping, and she was looking for a Kavu. If you know what a Kavu is, raise your hand. Okay. All the young people in the room, all those hands went up. All the uh, people over a certain age, uh, well, I see, I see one, they know, but you have grandkids. Yeah, so, uh, but uh, my, my daughter sent me a text and she said, uh, asked me if I liked this particular Kavu. And before the picture came in, I thought, what is a Kavu? What is she joining? Like, what's happening? You know, like, <laughs> I didn't know, you know. And then the picture came through and I thought, oh, that's, you yeah, know, okay. It's this bag, you know, that has one strap and all this. And, and I'm attempting to describe that to you. You look at all these things in our culture, and, and you, we, we can attempt to describe what's characteristic of a certain item or a particular people, those that drive a Prius. If you drive a Prius, it's nothing against you, but maybe there's a certain image that comes to your mind when, when that comes into your head, or let me just equally offend, you know, if you drive a jacked-up pickup truck, maybe an image comes to mind, right? Uh, or those that... That those that wear skinny jeans or those that wear cargo pants or those that, you know, wear pleats or whatever, we, we automatically sort of assign what we think that particular person is like. Well, what if you were to have to describe to someone what a Christian is like? How would you describe that person? And that's what Peter is going to do for us in our text today. He, in the beginning of this passage in verse 8, the first three words, first four words are, he says, finally, all of you. And what Peter is doing is he is summarizing for us what he began back in verses, verse 11 of chapter 2. He's summarizing 2.11 through chapter 3, verse 7. And in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he started this off and he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he started this thing telling Christians, this is what you should be and do. And then he went from there and he gave three different illustrations. In chapter 2, 13 through 17, he gave the illustration of how a Christian responds and interacts with the governing authorities where they live. In chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, he gave the illustration of how a Christian should live and interact and respond to a boss, or in the language of the day, a slave master 
whether a good one or a bad one, this is how a Christian responds and how a Christian interacts. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Matt did a great job last week handling this passage, how wives are to respond to their husbands and husbands respond to their wives in the context of being a Christian in marriage. And so today, when we come to this, this verse, Peter feels the need to say, finally, all of you. And I think he says this just so that when this, this letter was publicly read to these churches all throughout the region, just in case someone checked out because they weren't a wife or they weren't a slave or whatever the case, he brings them back together and he says, finally, all of you. This applies to everyone. So if for the last few weeks maybe you've checked out because maybe a particular week didn't apply to you per se because maybe you're not married or maybe you don't work or whatever, you're retired, whatever the case may be, I want, to, I want you to hear the words today of Peter, finally, all of us. If you are here today as a Christ follower, you are a Christian, this applies to you. It applies to us. This is how we should be described. So the sermon today is going to be set up in really three questions. Uh, How should Christians live? Why should Christians live that way? And then how can Christians live that way? And so that's the outline of the sermon if you wanted to take notes or follow along. Um, So let me just read the passage together and uh, and then we'll we'll dive in. The, The title of my sermon today is Love Those Who Like You. And bless those who bruise you. So let's read our our passage together. Verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This morning, in this first question, how should Christians live, where we receive a list. And uh, it's hard to make a list exciting. So I'm just going to tell you that up front so that you just right away say, this is going to be a little bit like when you get a buggy at a, at a, a buggy, that's a good southern word, a shopping cart at, at the grocery store, right? And you pull it out and someone has left their list there. This is a little bit like getting someone's list and it's hard to make that list exciting. <laughs> Loaf of bread. Wow. Okay, so I, this is going to be hard for me. I can't do this, but by the Spirit's help, we need, to, we need to hear what's on this list because it's for all of us. Number one, how should Christians live? We should have unity of mind. Now, this, the first part of this list, he's going to be speaking about toward one another. In verse 8, it's all about how we interact with one another inside the church. In verse 9, he's going to switch and he's going to go to the outside. He's going to say, how should Christians behave or act toward those who are outside? But the first thing he says in the church that we should have unity of mind. This word unity of mind, is, this phrase, is a, is a word that could also mean harmony. It's like musical instruments. If you've ever been to, a, to, a, to an orchestra or something like that and you've heard them warming up and you know that in that pit there are a, a myriad of instruments and not all those instruments sound alike. In fact, if, if you were to look at them and, and listen to them one by one, you'd say, man, those things are very distinct. You know, the percussion is, is not like you know, the, the brass or, or, or the strings or whatever. They're very different. And when they're warming up, you think, <coughs> excuse me, you're thinking, how in the world is this going to sound okay? Because they're all doing their own thing. They're just getting their instrument warmed up and, and making sure that they're in tune and all these things. But when the conductor steps to the platform and he begins to, or she begins to conduct that, that orchestra together, it's a very different sound. It's, it's not a bunch of distinct instruments that are all doing their own thing that sounds a little bit like nails on a chalkboard. Instead, it becomes this one unified, harmonious 
melody. And there are layers to it and parts to it, but they are all playing something that is very harmonious. And the reason for that is because they have all tuned themselves to the same key. They are in harmony together, and they are following the, the structure of the music. And when it comes to the church, we're just like that, not all going to agree on every single thing. All of us are distinct. God has made us how he has made us, and he has brought us together. If, in reality, and I've said this a lot of times, if you were to take us outside of the context of the gospel that brings us together, a lot of us really, really probably wouldn't choose to hang out together because we're very different. A lot of those things that I described in the, in the first part, we, we would be separate because of interests and background and all those things. But we come together in this place, even though we are not all going to agree perfectly on every single thing, but we come to this place and we should be in harmony together. That when we function as a church, we function together because, like those instrumentalists that, who have tuned themselves to the same key, we better be tuning ourselves to the gospel. The gospel, you, you hear it from this platform all the time, whether it's in this call to worship or it's from Ethan who's, who's leading us to respond in song or, or from whoever's standing and delivering the sermon. We're constantly putting before you and heralding the gospel because the gospel has to be the one note that we're all tuning ourselves to. Romans chapter 15 tells us, <coughs> May the God of endurance... Uh, and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have a friend, Mark Cannon, who's the pastor of the church at Lake Cooley, and they have a saying in their church. They say, we're all in the Honda together. It's based on this verse that they're in, in accord, right? <laughs> so now you get it. I said they have that saying. I didn't say we were going to have that saying, okay? <clears throat> so this admonition, though, to be with one another in one accord, this unity of mind, this admonition, one commentator pointed out, would be unnecessary if Christians weren't so prone to disagree with one another. Some of you are here today. You're here, you've come to this church, or you've come out of another church because maybe you've been hurt in another place. You've seen things there that you think, man, this should not be the case in a church. And you're here today and you come from different backgrounds. I myself come from a background of, of going through a lot of church strife and turmoil. And it's led me, it's shaped me in the way that I lead and want to pastor a church. I want us to be unified because I've seen some just real division. And I know that Christians are prone to this. And so does Peter. And that's why he says, have unity of mind. Be harmonious. Tune yourself to the gospel. Don't lose your distinction, but be unified in that distinction around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second thing he says, how should Christians live? Have sympathy. This is a word that means to feel with. You feel with somebody. You know, maybe you've had this experience too. Uh, maybe there's something going on. Maybe you're watching a movie or maybe you're at a funeral or something like that. How many times have I sat in a, in a movie, um, and, and I'm getting better at this, but I'm thinking this is kind of a sad movie, but I'm going to hold this thing together, and I'm going to be tough. It's really not affecting me or whatever. And I'll look over at my wife, and my wife will have tears running down her face. And all of a sudden, for me, in this stupid movie, I feel like crying. Why is that? Because I can't stand to see her cry. When she cries, it makes me want to cry, right? The other day, and, and I'm getting better because I think she's getting worse. Like the other day, there was some commercial on, and she looked over her, and she was about to choke up. And I'm thinking, you're crying over this commercial? What is wrong with you, you know? But maybe you've had that experience where someone you love, maybe you had it together, but you looked at them, and because they were touched with this emotion, it caused you to be touched with this emotion. Maybe it's not crying. Maybe it's laughter. You ever been caught up in laughter because somebody else around you was laughing? Uh, some of my favorite uh, memories so far with my family have been sitting in the living room and me and my daughter uh, losing ourselves laughing and can't control ourselves laughing and, and waking up the next morning with cramps in your side because you're laughing. And my daughter and I particularly will get, she'll start laughing 
and, uh, and just about the time that she'll have it under control, it'll hit me and I'll start laughing, which will cause her to start laughing. And it's this vicious cycle. And my wife is over there saying to me, what is wrong with you all, you know? This is what it means to feel with. It is sympathy. It's caring deeply about the needs, the joys, and the sorrows of other people. Romans chapter 12. (coughs) Sorry, I've got something tickling my throat. Romans 12 verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And that's what it means to have sympathy. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, then all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And this is what we should be known for in the church. This is if someone's describing the kavu of who we are, then we have sympathy. We feel with one another. Third, he says, have brotherly love. God creates, when, when he creates the church, God creates a brand new family. That's why often around here we refer to ourselves as the faith family. Because God... He adopts us. We sang about it this morning. He adopts us into his family. He becomes our older brother. When you think about that, Jesus becomes our older brother. God literally becomes our father. Not just just acting fatherly toward us in the way that he does with all of the rest of of humanity. You don't have to be a believer to wake up and have coffee. You know, you don't have to be a believer to, to wake up and look out and see a sunrise and, and hear the birds in the trees. But you have to be a believer to be able to truly call him father. For him to say, son, daughter. He's our father. He creates this whole new family. And by doing so, we are to be, we are to, to display that with this brotherly love. Now, sometimes, if you've got boys. Sometimes brothers don't necessarily look like they're loving one another, right? They're wrestling around in the yard, they're rolling around, and they were, at first it was fun and games, but all of a sudden somebody did something the other one didn't like, and it becomes fist fight, right? Later on, though, those same boys will come to say, those are some of the best times, man, I love you, you know? And they may not say that to one another, but it's brotherly love. Sometimes in, in the church, it it may appear at times where we're wrestling with one another. We may rub up against one another and somebody threw an elbow and we didn't, we didn't like that. But we don't walk away from one another. We don't sever those ties. Instead, we press into one another all the more. We talk to one another. And we're eager to forgive one another. We have brotherly love. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And that's what should mark us as Christians. And then I like this one. He said, fourth, have a tender heart. Literally, this tender heart means good bowels. So the natural question for a pastor to ask is, how are your bowels? Right? Which you don't know whether to laugh at that or, 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 or just sit silently because you're thinking, if I laugh, everybody's going to think I'm just, you know, whatever. But that's what it means, good bowels, Right? It's, it's a word that refers to the internal organs. We do the same thing when we say things like, I love you with all of my heart. You ever picked up some of these greeting cards and thought, who's writing this stuff, you know? But it's the same thing. We, 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 we want to speak of something that is so deep that it moves us in our gut. It speaks of, of affections and emotions with a visceral impact. Much like sympathy, this compassion causes a person to enter into and experience the pain of others. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, roots this good bowels, this tender heart, this deeply visceral emotion toward one another. It roots this entering into the pain of others in the fact that we have been forgiven. Listen to Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We're supposed to look at one another and realize that none of us have arrived, that none of us are there, that we all still struggle, that we're all going to, at some, at some point, just lose it and, and, and do something really stupid. At that point, we don't look at one another and go, well, I'm glad I'm not like you. Instead, we look at one another and we say, God has forgiven me, how could I not extend forgiveness to you? 
We're tender-hearted toward one another. A tender heart is a heart that's open to a brother or sister that's in need. 1 John three seventeen. I know I'm giving you a lot of Scripture this morning, but I want to root this thing in, in the Scriptures. 1 John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's the, it's, one of, it's, it's the principle upon which the one another ministry here at Abner Creek is, is based. That when we see a person who's up against it and struggling and, and needs help, that we want to come alongside them. And we want to help bear that burden. As a congregation, we want to say, we love you and we open our heart to you. We have a tender heart. And then fifth, as far as how we relate to, how we act toward one another... He says, have a humble mind. The word humble there means lowly. It's to consider others more important than yourself. Again, in Romans 12, there's a parallel that runs that Paul and Peter are teaching the same thing. That Romans 12, verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Man, make yourself low and get around those who who are also making themselves low. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, Clothe yourself, your, yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, with lowliness toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Now, the, the Greco-Roman culture despised humility. It was, it was, it was uh, considered to be weakness, and not unlike our culture today. Our culture today doesn't like humility either. Our culture today looks at humility, someone who's humble, and while they may from a distance think, you know, that's really admirable, more often than not they will jump on that person and and call them weak, and they will use them and abuse them and pass over them so that they can elevate themselves. But this is what we are called to, to be lowly toward one another, to have a humble mind toward one another. So then Peter gives this list of these five characteristics that should describe Christians interacting with other Christians inside the church. And then in verse 9, he turns outside of the church and he says, how should Christians live toward those who are outside of the faith? And in verse 9, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now certainly, one, one Christian can be mistreated by another in the church. It's going to happen. We're all in the middle of our sanctification. We, the, the Bible calls us saints, but at the same time, we all know that we still struggle on a daily basis with residual sin. So you put us all together, and we're going to hurt one another from time to time. You know, the problem comes when we don't realize that and expect that. If we don't know that going in, there's, there's a great book for, for those in marriage uh, from Paul David Tripp called What Did You Expect?, and it's this whole thing that sometimes uh, a couple comes together and they're in that, that you know, leading up to the, the wedding phase and everything's wonderful and hunky-dory and if, you know, wham, it was just going to be awesome, you know. And then they get together and like for my wife and I, the first six months of our marriage was rough. It was mainly rough because God had a lot of sin to remove from my wicked heart. And there was a point where in those first six months, there were multiple points where we didn't necessarily know that we were going to last. The problem was we came into this thing called marriage thinking that once we get married, everything will be perfect. And I think sometimes people come into the church and think, once I join the church, everything is going to be perfect. And, <laughs> you know, because we're all not there yet. Even Paul, when he wrote, said, I don't consider myself to have already arrived or achieved. Instead, I forget those things behind me and I press on, right, toward what's ahead. That's the mentality we have to have. So certainly one Christian can be mistreated by another in the church, but it should not be the norm. Peter's point here, the reason we know that he's talking to, about how we should live toward those who are outside of the faith is because the norm should be that inside the church, he's just given you this list of five characteristics, but outside the church is where this mistreatment should come from. It's where the evil should come toward Christians. It's where the reviling should most naturally come toward the, the Christians. So 
when, when he says here, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, every one of us, if we're honest, are natural-born retaliators. I mean, aren't we? Somebody says something to you, well, you just want to come back at them. So if we're natural-born retaliators, this command that Peter's giving us here is not going to come easy. If someone treats you bad, you want to get them back. The other day, Lana and I were... We, we'd gone out to, to someone's house and we were coming back. And, and ever since I preached this sermon a few weeks ago about submitting to governing authorities, I've been really trying to kind of really look at the speed limit and trying to, you know, make this not a matter of legalism, but I'm just trying to, t- trying to you know, worship God through the way I drive. So I'm driving on this road and the speed limit on this road is 35. Now, granted, 35 on this road, it's been a long time since whoever sets the speed limits drove on this road. Okay, that's all I'm saying. It should not be this way. But I'm not in government. So I'm going to submit myself to this. And I've set my cruise control on 35, and I'm going out through there. And about that time, this pickup truck comes up behind me, got all these ladders on it or whatever, and they're on my butt, you know. And they're just, they're just you know, doing all this. And I'm driving, and I'm, Lord, I'm trying to worship you here. And I'm looking in my rearview mirror. And I'm seeing them. They're getting angry, all this kind of stuff. We pull up to a stop sign, and this person pulls up behind me at the stop sign. And I just happened, I, I got to wait on cars, but I, I look in my rearview mirror about the time that the passenger in this truck, the windows are down, and, and he gestures to me out the window. My worship was tested in that moment, I just got to tell you. Because everything in me wanted to say, oh yeah, let me show you some evil. I'm going to give you some evil for evil. I'm going, to re- I'm going to revile you for reviling me. You know, that's what I wanted to do. But in that moment, I had to say, am I going to exercise faith in this moment, in the practicality of this moment? Am I going to worship God? Am I going to trust Him in this moment? And that's what faith is. Faith is not this just out there somewhere ethere- ethereal concept. Yes, we should trust the Lord, brother, right? That's not what faith is. Faith is when that guy's gesturing to you, what are you going to do? And that's what, that's what Peter's saying to us here is don't return evil for evil. The word revile that he uses here is from the word that means an abusive railing against. It's from the word that means cursing. It's from the word that means to speak evil of. When those things happen to you, it's not easy. I've, at points in ministry, been the, the object of some of this reviling. And the internet doesn't help things. Facebook doesn't help things. And sometimes people will take to these, these, these new inventions. They're not new so much anymore, but they take to these, these innovations and they use those as weapons against you to revile you. It's not easy to not return evil for evil. But Peter says... On the contrary, bless. See, it's one thing if Peter only says, don't return evil for evil, don't revile when you're reviled. That's the matter of, I'm going to grip my teeth, and I'm just not going to respond. I'm going to count to three. I'm going to breathe deeply. But he adds to it, and he says, oh, that's not enough. Bless them. John Piper calls this words with heart behind them. That's what it means to bless. I would draw a distinction. I would add to John Piper's definition. Words with heart behind them for their good. That's an important distinction because we can give words with heart behind them, right? I wanted to the other day. Let me tell you something. Did you feel my heart? You know, that's what I wanted to say, you know. But for their good, can you speak good of the person who commits evil against you and reviles you? The word bless here is the word that, where we get eulogy from. You ever heard someone stand up at a funeral and begin to talk about the person who's laying there in the casket before them? And they say, you know, Bob was, I mean, he was no good. He was just no count. Man, he was always just spreading rumors. He was a liar. He was a lousy, deadbeat dad. He was all these things. You never hear that, right? If those things are true, you never hear that. You hear how faithful he was and how what a great friend he was and how loving he was and his heart was really good, you know? And that's what God is calling us here to. 
Not to, not to look at those who revile us and make things up. But to from the heart truly speak good of and good for the person who is reviling us. You know, one of the ways that we can do this, and we had it modeled for us by Jesus himself, is to pray for those individuals. A person looks at you and they revile you, they rail against you, they curse at you, they speak evil of you. God, I don't necessarily want to to pray this, but Lord, change my heart and bless that person, God. Lord, I pray that you'd cause your face to shine upon them. God, I pray that you'd Lord, bless them in their endeavors. Lord, I pray that you'd you'd bring them to yourself, that you'd bless them with the joy that can be found in the gospel alone. God, I pray that for them. When you have an opportunity to speak with others about that person, to speak well of them, to say, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything they, they do or stand for, but you know what? I want to love them. And do you speak well of them? That's a hard thing to do, but that's what we're called to do here, to genuinely speak well of them and for them instead of reviling. So I spent a lot of time there on the first question. Let me move to the second question. If that's how Christians are to live, both in the context of the church and in the world, then why? Why should Christians live like this? Someone might say, you know, if I'm secure in my faith, if I can't lose my salvation, then why do I care? Why do I want to be of one mind? Or why do I want to be tenderhearted? Or why do I want to bless instead of reviling? What does it matter if I'm secure in my faith? And if that's your attitude, I would simply say to you, you might need to check your faith. And if there is any real root of it there, and I'll show it to you in this passage, Peter does. So why should Christians live like this? Two reasons. One, because we have been blessed. Verse 9 says, For to this you were called. Jesus taught, But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek as, as well. The one who takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. The beautiful thing is, while we trust in the words of Jesus as being ultimate, absolute truth, Jesus didn't leave this in the realm of, of just words. If you look back in 1 Peter to chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, he went beyond words and he, he enacted and modeled this for us. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. That's why Peter can now say in verse 9 of chapter 3, To this you've been called. Don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Instead, on the contrary, bless. He roots it in what Jesus did for us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. One of the reasons why we're called to this that we should care about this, that we should seek for these things in the church and outside of, when we interact with people outside of the faith, is because we've been blessed. How could we, who have been so forgiven and so loved and so blessed, not be so eager to also forgive and love and bless? Think of the, the pause that this would create to give to those who mistreat you. I mean, would that not create gospel opportunities when they are sending evil your way, they're reviling you, and instead of reacting in the same way, you bless them? And it just creates opportunities for the gospel. You bless them instead, and they're puzzled. They don't have a category for that. What's, what's, what's going on here? Get mad at me. They don't, have a, they don't have a category for you to bless them instead of revile them. 
Consider this illustration. There was once a, a, a soldier, a Christian soldier, who was living in, in barracks with his unit. And, uh, and every night, he would, before he turned in for the night, he would open his Bible and he would read his Bible. And there was a soldier a, a across the, uh, the, 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 the barracks from him that was not a Christian and looked on this Christian soldier with, with just disgust. And he would, just, he would yell at him. He would insult him. And one night, I mean, the Christian's reading his Bible. He's done it a bunch of times. He's seen this. One night, the, the, the non-Christian soldier takes his muddy combat boots and he throws them across the room toward this Christian soldier. In that moment, you know, some might be tempted to throw them back or whatever the case. Instead, what this Christian soldier did the next morning, this hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, polished and ready for inspection. This Christian soldier had served. He had blessed instead of reviled. And the story goes on that, that um, I don't know what happened to that hostile soldier, but there were many other soldiers in that same unit that came to know Christ as Savior and Lord because of the witness of this one that blessed instead of cursed. So we care about these things. We seek for these things because we have been blessed. Number two, though, so that we will be blessed. And this is going to present a pretty, pretty tough concept for us to get, maybe. Uh, but I, I want you to hear it. I want you to really, if you, haven't, if you haven't been listening intently before, listen intently right now. I don't like when preachers say that because it, it almost gives you permission to kind of check out the rest of the time. But I want you to hear this. The last part of verse 9, we care about these things so that we will be blessed. last part of verse 9 says that you may obtain a blessing. At first glance, this seems to be at odds with, with justification by faith alone. And you say, but wait a minute, aren't we secure? In, I mean, if, if we believe, if we profess faith in Christ, aren't we secure? This seems to be saying that that may be up in the air. This seems to be saying that, that maybe justification is not by faith alone, but maybe it's by faith plus our obedience, plus our works. We know if we, if we look at the, the rest of Scripture, this is not what the rest of Scripture is saying. And in fact, if we just look carefully at the rest of even 1 Peter, we realize this is not what 1 Peter is saying. In verses 3 through 5, Peter has already written, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And then if you skip down toward verse 5, it says that He has kept in heaven for us this inheritance, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is not here in chapter 3, verse 9, saying that your salvation is based on belief plus works. He's already cleared this up. He's already settled this issue. He's saying to us in chapter 1, 3 through 5, salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. That God is the one who saves us. He's the one who regenerates us. He's the one that in our dead state comes and quickens us to life. He's the one who speaks to the dead bones of our existence and causes them to begin to rattle and come forth. He is also the one who keeps us. That salvation is not only His to begin, it is His also to complete. That He is guarding us and He will see us all the way through. That this inheritance, it is undefiled and imperishable. That He's guarding us. That salvation is His work completely. That when we get to one day, when we get to heaven and we stand around His throne, no one there will swagger. No one there will strut. No one there will say, well, you know... I did a pretty good job hanging on to this thing, wouldn't you say, Jesus? In that moment, mouths will be silent except for the praise of the one who saved us to the uttermost. There is no contradiction in Peter here in chapter 3, verse 9. Works are not meritorious. They're not earning our salvation, but... Here's what I want you to hear. That's not the, the hard part because if you've been in this church for any time at all, you've heard that over and over. But here's the hard part possibly. 
While works are not meritorious effort by which we earn our salvation, works are non-negotiable necessary evidence of our salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you look at the context of that, you realize he's writing to Christians. 2 Peter chapter 1, 5 through 11. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and self-control steadfastness, steadfastness godliness, godliness brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, therefore brothers, we be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. That is so important for us to get and understand. That these works that we perform as believers are not earning anything for us, but they are confirming our calling and our election. Therefore, brothers... Confirm this calling, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is some way, somehow, that these works of obedience, after we are saved, become this evidence that will be used at the entrance to heaven. We're not earning our way in there but there is somehow, some way, God looks at this as the evidence of our lives. First John chapter 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This still may be a hard concept to understand, but I want you to consider this following illustration. I was reading this week in a book unrelated to my study for this, but I'm, I love when God takes this reading and marries it together and sovereignly just says, this is what you need for this week. And I'm reading this book called Repentance by Richard Owen Roberts. And in this book, he gives this illustration. He said, we all know... Certain settings, certain events in our culture still today where it's required that you wear a certain type of dress. He said, take, for instance, a wedding. The, when, you, when you show up at the wedding, it, you know, you, the, the way you dress is not the invitation. You've got the invitation in the mail. The invitation is the invitation. But he said, but you could possibly at a formal wedding be turned away for not wearing a certain type of dress. In the same way, our works are not what gets us into heaven. Our works are not the invitation. Our works don't earn us heaven. The gospel is our invitation. We trust in the gospel. We look at that and we say, God, this is true. You say, this is true. You've done this for me, Lord. I'm trusting in this. That's, that's this this repentance and faith in that is, is the invitation. That's what secures us our place in heaven. But on judgment day, if the clothing of our earthly lives, listen carefully to this because don't, don't misconstrue this to say something I'm not. If on judgment day, our clothing of our earthly lives winds up being unbefitting of a true follower of Christ, we will most certainly be rejected. Jesus said it like this. Matthew chapter 7, 16 through 19. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And then listen, Jesus said... Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What Jesus is saying, what Peter is saying, is that when you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, when, when you're saved, 
when you're justified by faith alone, you cannot have the attitude. It doesn't matter what I do in this world. It doesn't matter what I, I'm, I'm safe, I'm secure. I'll live my life however I want to live. And one day I'll get to heaven and I'll say, gospel. That is audacious. It presumes on the grace of God. What God says, what Jesus said, what Peter is saying here is that for the one who's truly in Christ, it will so impact and so affect your life that you will say, oh God, root out any sin in me. God, help me to turn from it. God, help me to hate it. I don't hate it like I should, God. The person who is impacted and affected truly by the gospel, who is born again, will say, oh God, I want to be good. I want to be good, not because I'm earning anything from you, Lord. I'm beloved. But Lord, I want to follow you. I I want to obey your commands, God, because you are not just my Savior. You're my Lord. So the last question, how can Christians live like this? Verse 10 tells us that we should cultivate heavenly desire. Verse 4 to 10 says, Whoever desires to love life and see good days, this should be a part of your everyday existence, is to spend time with the Lord, to get into your Bible, to open it up and to read it. And some days you'll read it and it will be, it will be like you're trying to get out of quicksand. You'll just think, oh, just, this is a struggle for me. Other days you will open it up and you will read something and it will become this promise that is sweet to you. It's like honey. On your, on your tongue and you say, oh God, thank you. But in that everyday practice of spending time with the Lord, getting in His Word, hiding it in your heart, praying and talking to Him, you're cultivating this heavenly desire. You're looking around at the world around you and you're saying, oh God, I'm in exile here. But God, I'm here at your appointment. Lord, I long for the day when you will return and I will be with you in heaven. Lord, Lord, let it come. So we cultivate heavenly desire. Number two, we repent repeatedly. Verses 10 and 11, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil. This is what it means to repent as we turn our backs on. We turn away from evil. And some have misunderstood this to think, well, I did that. And there was a point, I can tell you the date. I, I did that. I repented of my sin. And the Bible never tells us that repentance is a one-time act that we can check off. The Bible tells us instead that repentance is this ongoing, every day, never get over it, turning away from the sin that so easily ensnares you. And this is what so many people miss is because they think, well, shouldn't I be over this by now? And the reality is you'll spend the rest of your days Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I was so quickly snared and pulled into that thing. Lord, help me to turn away from this. And you walk away from it. And you may be sucked back into it again, but you say, oh God, I can't believe I did that again. Lord, would you please help me, Lord, turn away from this. I don't want to love this. I want to hate this, Lord, because I know that this thing, this, this, this attitude in me, this pride in me, this in me, is the murder weapon that held you to the cross. So God, let me have disgust toward it. And it's this constant, repeated repentance. Number three, pursue goodness and peace. That's what verse 11 says. Do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And this is sort of the the second side of the coin of repentance. The first side of the coin of repentance is you turn away from evil. The second side is you go toward good. You you pursue what God says is good. You pursue it. You actively engage in the pursuit of it. So many Christians just sit around and say, well, you know, why didn't He make me holy? Why didn't He do this thing? God says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Right? Go after it. Four, pray. One of the most beautiful verses I've come across in a long time is verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. 
His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I I wrote in the margin of my Bible next to this verse 12, I underlined eyes, I underlined ears, I underlined prayer. And out in the margin I wrote, he's looking, he's listening. You have his attention. Pray. It's a beautiful verse. God says, if you're one of mine, you will actively desire heaven and turn away from sin and you'll pursue these things and call on me, ask me. You have my attention. My my eyes are open toward you. I'm looking at you. My ears are open. I'm listening. You have my attention. Pray. Ask me and see what I won't do. So these are the things that Peter says should characterize a Christian. This is how we are to live. My question to you in the spirit of calling you to repent is how are you doing? This is not this hellfire and brimstone preacher who stands up here and just wants to scream at you. I want you to know that there's hope in the gospel. There's grace there that God says, turn to me. Believe in me. Pray to me. And see if I won't see you all the way through. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you are gracious to call us to yourself. God, I pray today that you might help us to see, Lord, the um, perhaps maybe the other side of what it means to be a Christian. Lord, I pray that this would not uh, turn into legalism. God, that you would prevent the enemy from taking this and, and making this something that it is never intended to be. But God, that you might move in our hearts and you might cause us to be motivated because we have been blessed and so that we look forward to the blessing that we will receive. God, I pray that you do your work. Glorify your name in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond as Ethan plays. We respond in, in, in song. Um, perhaps the Lord has, has called you to a particular point of application of, of obedience. Take that step today. Do it. I'll be seated here on the front row. I'd, I'd love for you to come speak to me if I can help you by praying with you or, or offering you guidance. I'd love to help you with that. There'll be people that are in a prayer room out the doors to my right and your left. They would love to pray with you there. Whatever it is that God has shown you today and is calling you to, then do it. One of the things may be repentance, turning away from evil, and resolving yourself to pursue the good that he's called you to. So do that today. Do it for his glory. Let's respond to him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.